0: Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. Bridging the gap between Jewish leaders and those who follow them. Gain insight from Jewish professionals who make the decisions that influence your Jewish world. Welcome to It's Who You Know, the podcast. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. And my guest today is Stephanie Rhodes, who is the executive director for the Slingshot Fund, a role she's had for just over two years, and she's currently a Schusterman Fellow. Prior to her role, she ran the annual fund at the JCC Manhattan, where she started the first JCC Giving Circle to benefit the JCC programs. She's also worked for many years with the Jewish Funders Network. One of the reasons I wanted to bring Stephanie on the program today is that Slingshot just released their 2017 guides, which they have been doing for many years. And as a Jewish professional, I've always really looked at these guides as a way to see what's out there, see what's exciting, uh, see what organizations are continuing to do really great work. And I just really wanted to hear a little bit more about how and why they do their work and the impact that these guides and this very public way of giving has impacted their work. So thank you so much for coming on the program today. Welcome,
1: Sid. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: Wonderful. So let's go ahead and get started just talking about yourself and how you got into this position.
1: I was at a sushi restaurant one night in LA, started talking to the couple next to me. The woman was Sherry Hirsch, a rabbi at Sinai Temple that was Saturday night. And on Monday morning, I was in meeting with Rabbi David Wolpe about a position that they had. I was in the tech and internet and advertising world. And the next thing I knew, I was running family life program for Sinai Temple. And that was how I got into Jewish life. I knew I wanted to work in Jewish life. I was ready to make the change. I had no idea walking into that sushi restaurant that that was going to be my moment. And six months later, my husband got into grad school in New York and we had to move. And I remember thinking and talking to him about the fact that I was crushed. I was never going to be able to find another job in Jewish life. And he said to me, we're moving to New York. I think you'll be okay. It turns out that we had a summer intern at the synagogue who was in JTS. And when I showed her the job description for the Jewish Funders Network, which a friend passed along to me, she told me she knew the contact there. And Literally from there, I went to New York. I met with them many months later, wound up with that job and was running the first ever next gen program that they had. Found myself there for nine years and it was amazing. I learned so much about philanthropy and family philanthropy and next gen Jewish life around the world, actually. And nine years in, it felt like it was time to do something else. And I called a headhunter. Not to help place me, but to help figure out what do you do with tech experience, six months at a synagogue and nine years at JFN, which is David Edell, and he said to me, "You're asking the wrong question. You should be asking yourself what skills you need for the job after the next job, and if I were you, I'd go get some fundraising experience." It was great, great, great advice. I had two kids going through the JCC Manhattan Nursery School. I sent an email actually, to Joy Levitt and said, "I'm getting ready to leave where I am, trying to figure out what's next. Is there something I might be able to do for you? I'd love to meet you." And she emailed me back within like an hour (laughs) and I went in to meet with her. And the next thing I knew, I was running the annual campaign at the JCC where I was for two years. I remember I was at an amplifier convening. It was the first one that they ever did. And I had started this giving circle at the JCC and I went to the convening and realized while I was sitting there that that was the world I wanted to be in. Fundraising was a really good experience, but it wasn't the career path that I really like being involved in the creating and the doing the fundraising piece, that role in and of itself wasn't enough for me. So I wound up leaving without something. Do I still even want to be in Jewish life? What do I want to be doing? And I, at the time, my husband was running a tech startup out of our living room. In the absence of, you know, getting up and going to work every day, your mind goes naturally to a place. For those six months, it was all about the intersection of Jewish life and innovation. When I heard that Will Schneider, who was my predecessor, was leaving Slingshot, it turned out that the firm that was placing his replacement was DRG. And I called Dara Klarfeld and said, this looks really interesting. I'd love to meet the board and hear what they're thinking and see whether this might be a good fit. Now I'm running slickshot. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's amazing. It's, uh, I think, maybe the most fun job I've ever had. So
0: what expectations from when you initially got the job to now did you think that you had when you started that are different about just this world that you're now working in?
1: I had never been an executive director before. I don't think I realized how much fun I was going to have. We're small. Mm-hmm. So there's really very little red tape. So if we come up with a good idea, we get to try it. You know, being the executive director also means that you get to set the culture. And this is something I learned at JFN. Actually, Mark Charandov, who was running it when I was there, was great with this. I really believe that it's okay to fail. Like you're not going to actually grow or learn or innovate if you're not comfortable with failure at least not blowing it out of the park, right?
0: And with other Um, people's failure, right? Correct. Yeah.
1: Correct. The fact that we get to be creative and that we're in an environment that it's okay to try things and for them not to always work has been thrilling. And when I thought about what it was going to be to be an ED, I don't know that I really thought about how wonderful that piece of it would be, like that I would get to lead the creation of the culture. Over the past two years, the staff that was originally there is all now gone and we're new. We're hanging on to a brand and I hope honoring it and helping to grow it. And at the Mm -hmm. same time, getting to create our own culture, which is awesome. Everything I knew going into this was that the board was going to be an important piece of the ED success. They've been unbelievable. I'm really blown away by the dedication and how smart and thoughtful and committed to slingshot they are. The organization that I inherited, which for six months was being run by an interim exec, Jenna Weinberg had stepped off the board and into the interim ED role. She and the board really handed me a healthy organization in a great place that was ready for me. You know, you don't know until you get in what's really going on. And I'm right. grateful what they handed me when I got there. And really, just the creativity. And the openness to partnerships that I've encountered as we are starting to think of cool new ideas and people we want to work with. And yeah, I mean, it's all been... I don't know if I would say a surprise. It's not like I expected that these things weren't going to be this way, but they were surprises to me because I hadn't thought about it going in some of this stuff. And just the enthusiasm around Slingshot. It's like such a happy, hopeful place. We're at a crazy time in our world, nationally and internationally, and none of us could have foreshadowed that we would be in this moment. But it's incredible to work in such a hopeful, optimistic place. It's just awesome.
0: Wonderful. So let's jump into the work a little bit. If you can, give us a little bit of history of Slingshot and this guide. When the new Slingshot Guide came out, one of my administrative assistants saw it. And so I was talking with her about it. And I actually have probably like six or seven of them. And I pulled them off my shelf to kind of show her and flip through them. And the earliest one I have is 07, 08, And I'm like, oh, God, that's 10 years ago. Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. Yes. But so it, this is not a new project. This is not a new fund. And I feel like over the years, as I mentioned before, you know, Slingshot has carried a brand and an image and a reputation that is fantastic. So I'd love to hear from your perspective a little bit of the history of the fund and then how it's kind of seen today.
1: Sharna Goldsucker was working at the Andrea and Charles Bronfman Philanthropies, and part of her charge was engaging young inheritors of wealth. They created a program called 2164, within which Grand Street, which is a training they do for next-gen funders, back in 2004, three or four, whenever it was, they were running it like once a year. A group of next-gen funders went through this experience with her, which essentially was looking at what are you inheriting beyond the wealth and what do you want to do about it? What kind of impact do you want to have on the world? It's an intense weekend, this Grand Street Retreat. And on the other side of it, this group of folks came out and said, all right, this is awesome. Now we're clear about the impact that we want to have on the world. We have no idea how to navigate the Jewish world to find the stuff that's going to be most cutting edge and innovative. And somebody said, you know, we need a Zagat-style guide to Jewish innovation, which Sharna, 2164, and the Bronfman Philanthropies loved. And pretty quickly, they were able to start working on this. And they reached out to, I believe it was around 40 evaluators the first year and 80 applicants that were invited to apply. And in 2005, they published the first guide that had 50 organizations in it. And they did a launch party on the Lower East Side you know, invited the organizations that got in and members of the field who were in and around the Jewish innovation space. And I should mention, you know, if you think back to 2005, it was kind of right around then the first iPod came out, right around then Joshua Venture was putting itself together and Bikurim. And there was culturally some innovation really starting to take shape. And also within Jewish life, incubating innovation was also starting to blossom a little bit. And I think it was sort of catching. And so A, everybody wanted to be at this party and B, everybody wanted to read this book because it became kind of like a guide, a how-to, and it had been vetted, which I think really is Mm -hmm. part of what gave it some of its gravitas. And it was being put out by a foundation, which was also an extra stamp.
0: Do you know at all why that was the choice? I think most people like announce who they've given to or who their prize winners are. But this very public guide, do you have any information or insight as to why that was the choice of being so open?
1: The book was not a list of everything that the Bronfman Philanthropies funded or that the members of the group funded. It was really meant to be like a Zegat, a guide, or however you use Yelp today, right? Like I feel like having Chinese food and you open it up and figure out based on where you are, what's good. This was a very similar way of thinking about it. They set the criteria and they asked funders and professional grant makers in the field to evaluate it so that they could put together like a compendium of things that were most cutting edge and innovative so that the Grand Street folks and their peers and the fields would be able to look at a list that had a hexer of sorts on it. Mm-hmm. But being in the guide did not mean that they had received funding. It right. just meant that they okay. had left the standards. Right. And actually what wound up happening is that two years into the creation of this guide, that very same group said, okay, well, we created this so we could start investing in some of this work. We should really pool our resources and make some grants together. Um, So as far as I know, this was like the very beginning 12 years ago of giving circles. All the members were Grand Street folks, young inheritors of wealth. They pooled their resources and they made grants. They announced them at the launch party. The launch party has since evolved to Slingshot Day, which is a day-long gathering around Jewish innovation. And the Slingshot Fund has been running since, I believe it's 2007. And we've given close to half a million dollars away through the fund. And we're starting to grow them, which we can talk more about later.
0: So is that the same model? Like, is what we're looking at in 2017 a list of organizations that have gotten funding from Slingshot? Or is it a list of organizations that are being highlighted and some of them may or may not have gotten funding?
1: What happens is the book is created. This 50 list is created. We just put this out at the beginning of June. And now we're assembling Slingshot Funds that will have the list of the 50 from this year to look at as potential funding options. So the guide becomes the docket for the 2017 Slingshot Fund. The presence in the guide does not indicate that they've received Slingshot Fund funding. In that way, it is still the same model. And the fact that the guide presents the list for potential grantees also echoes the founding fund. The difference is we've over the years started to do regional and topical guides. So in 2016, we had our first ever local slingshot guide in Chicago, and we're working on a topical one for 2018 that would have a fund for it as well, meaning a fund that focused specifically on that topic area. Right. There could be several of them around the country. It's kind of in development now, but The list is about potential grantees for us and also for the community.
0: So was it that you have your pool of applicants and you've realized in that pool of applicants, wow, there's so many that are from Chicago or so many that are focused on women. I know you've done in a few different ways. And then that's kind of how you're able to pull out what to do as a supplemental. Or is it, we want to focus on Chicago. And so we target Chicago to pull in applications from that area or that topic. Is it chicken or egg or egg or chicken?
1: Yes. Right. I think (laughs) in the early days, it was this idea that we could be doing regional or topical. And there were some people who were really interested in helping to make that happen. Mm -hmm. I think as time has gone on, we're moving to be more strategic in the choices, recognizing that there's actually the impact of creating those is big. It's funny, when I came in, I'll be totally candid, I came in and the deal was already in place to do a Chicago guide. And I had been spending two years doing very local stuff in New York, and I didn't really know what was going on in Chicago. And I didn't understand why we had committed to doing the Chicago guide. It was a really strategic move on both the funders' part and Will's part. There's a big investment in Chicago from local funders in creating a Jewish innovation space that I think they've quite successfully launched. Doing a guide in that space helped to highlight the work they were doing. And we're actually going to be doing another Chicago guide in 2018 to be able to take a look at the evolution over two years of that space. And the expectation is that there's even more going on there now than there was when we published in 2016. So, Joyce Siski, who was running the Jewish Women's Foundation of New York at the time and Will, understood that creating this would help to prioritize this as an issue area and also understood that there are so many Jewish women's funds around the country that a resource like this would be valuable for. That They created that, I think, the Ruderman Foundation and Slingshot went into work together to do the guide on disabilities many years ago as part of the strategy to bring the disabilities issue more front and center was one of many pieces. And then I got there and I looked at where the organizations were concentrated that were being featured and to no surprise, it's along the East Coast. And also to no surprise, it was along the West Coast. So I kind of went into the LA area and San Francisco area saying, I think there's the opportunity to do a book here. And we did. And then, you know, moving into next year, we've got, given everything that's going on in the world, we're, we're trying to be proactive in putting together a book that pays attention to some of the issues of the day and how to kind of put them in one place as a resource. Right.
0: I want to move on to other questions, but I want to give you the opportunity if there are other things that are percolating in your mind about just the project in general or describing it or other things that you can think of that you'd like to mention about the project specifically.
1: The only other thing I think I haven't really talked about is like I mentioned the three pillars of the guide, the day, and the funds, but we're also, there's one-off programs that we've been doing, these 90-minute slingshot funds that we've been running around the country and we starting around the Chicago launch actually partnered with Upstart to do something we call the Upshot Collaborative, where we run the giving circle piece and they train the organizations to give these beautiful pitches as part of the event. And there's some other projects that we're working on that would present fertile ground for new one-off programming, but we try to partner when we can, go into smaller communities, do one-off things to help get funders and organizations thinking about how to support and sustain Jewish innovation and how to get young people really excited, about what's going on in Jewish life and the idea, particularly for inheritors of wealth and, you know, those who are able to do so to really make sure that they are not only supporting Jewish life, but helping to create the kind of Jewish life that they want to be a part of.
0: Well, that's a great transition to my next question about partnerships. You've mentioned, you know, you obviously worked for the Jewish Funders Network. You mentioned Upstart and a few other organizations. And I'd love for you to touch upon how you see those partnerships and how your work is combined with other either innovation or funding type endeavors that are out there?
1: When I got here, we were serving funders of innovation, next-gen funders, and the innovators themselves. And that's a lot of people who need a lot of different kinds of Things in this space, and just over a year of me getting here, the merger was announced between Joshua Venture, B Green, Present Tense, and mm-hmm. Upstart, with some incredible professionals who really, I think, have done wonderful work supporting innovation. So, professional development for innovators is, I think, they're doing a beautiful job. And I, you know, I always think to try to answer the question, you know why Slingshot? And if Upstart is doing an amazing job and, and the organizations that have now joined Upstart, what's the unique piece that we have to offer and who do we partner with and how do we leverage our sweet spot? And so I think we've started to really try to pay attention to training and connecting with next NextGen as, a, as a, an important piece of our work, which doesn't lessen at all our commitment to funders of innovation or the innovators themselves. They're both critical pieces of our work. But it also presents an opportunity for us to partner with organizations to strengthen what we're doing. So in the case of Upstart, bringing organizations together with funders, which we did for the Upshot, so that we gave an opportunity to everybody sitting at the table Mm -hmm. to be funders, changed the approach a little bit to the 90-Minute Slingshot Fund, and giving the organizations some professional development by the folks who do this really well, we're hoping is adding an opportunity for them to strengthen their skill set so that even if they don't leave with a grant, they are leaving with some education and training that will help them as they move on in their work. So there's that piece. In terms of Jewish Funders Network, given what I've said and the fact that I was there for nine years and really believe in their work and love what they do, you know, I think if we're successful, people go through our slingshot funds, become more confident confident and focused and strategic around their philanthropy and move on. And so our hope is that people, when they're ready to be part of a larger, more diverse network, just even in terms of like number of people and ages, join the larger philanthropic conversations, that they'll find a home in their local communities with Jewish funders network. In fact, we have a board member who just joined our board and their board. And I feel like that's, Amazing for both of us. Yeah,
0: that's a great partnership.
1: So there's that. And then as we do more topical work and work in some smaller communities. I think our expertise is really in innovation and next-gen philanthropy. So if we're looking at a topical book that we don't have expertise in, trying to find the partners in the space who can bring that expertise to make sure we're covering the issue the way it should be and completely and accurately. There's so many people doing such amazing work in this space that as we expand, I think partnerships are gonna be really important. You know, we have our specialty and so do other people. So whenever there's an opportunity for us, to partner. I I love that because I just think it makes everybody's work better.
0: You've been listening to It's Who You Know, the podcast. I'm your host, Michelle W. Malkin. This episode has been made possible through the partnership with Nonprofit Learning Lab, designed to support nonprofit professionals in every stage of your career through online resources, webinars, and in-person institutes. Nonprofit Learning Lab connects you to other professionals and mentors to help you sharpen your skills. It's Who You Know listeners can get 50% off membership and institute registration with the promo code you know. Visit NonprofitLearningLab.org for more information. Also, the Wexner Fields Fellowship is now accepting pre-applications through September 6th. Find out more information at www.wexnerfoundation.org. Before returning to my conversation with Stephanie, I'd like to take a moment to introduce you to the guest for our next episode, Rabbi Dan Judson, who discusses with me the concept of donation-based membership in our synagogues and how the tides might be shifting. Here is a clip from our upcoming conversation. We looked at why they gave up dues, and we also looked at were they successful, And this was a follow-up to a study I had done two years ago, where there were 26 synagogues in that study that had given up dues. And now this study had 57 synagogues to over 60 synagogues now. And my sense is it's not going to be the model for every synagogue by any means. But at the end of the day, it's going to be another way for synagogues to think about funding themselves. And the finding that we came out from this research is pretty instructive, and I'd say pretty positive, that across the board, every synagogue is happy that they moved to this model. Nobody is thinking about moving back. Across the board, the historical kind of weighted average sees amongst all these synagogues of over 4% growth on a yearly basis and about a 2% revenue growth. Be sure to listen to the rest of my conversation with Rabbi Dan Judson in the next episode of It's Who You Know. But for now, back to Stephanie let's talk a little bit about the larger impact in a couple of different contexts. And I tend to ask a lot of questions. And so you can trace out from there how you'd like to answer all of them. But in a couple of different ways, one, you know, obviously to the larger Jewish community, you know, 12 years of pushing out and evaluating Jewish organizations for those organizations who are either only in your guide once or are new to being in your guide, the impact that they feel from that exposure. And for those organizations that I know have been in your guide years... year after year and that this is... I think you guys did a standard bearer supplement at one point or an insert. What that's really meant for their organization to have... I mean, it feels like a partnership, right? That it's it's kind of continued to be highlighted. So it's kind of the three questions, right? The larger impact, the impact on reoccurring organizations and the impact on new relationships and new organizations that you're highlighting.
1: It's interesting. I've done this now twice. And the book just came out like literally this month. So it's hard for me to know 100% for sure on new organizations that were featured, how this affected them. But I can tell you from last year, there are a couple that I'm thinking about. New to the book last year was Yid Life Crisis. Also new to the book last year was One Table. In both cases, they got into the guide because they were doing amazing work. Mm -hmm. And because they were doing amazing work, they got unbelievable recognition, not just from Slingshot. So certainly we can't claim to have launched their trajectory. At the same time, I certainly hope that inclusion in the guide has has introduced them to folks who might not be as networked and connected to this Jewish innovation space, who might be in smaller communities, who might not be based in whether it's L.A., San Francisco, New York, you know, the major cities that this stuff usually gets to where those two organizations maybe do a lot of work. You know, one of the things that we hear from small towns or from outside of our mailing list even who reach out to us to order books is that they want to see what's going on around the country. The effect is twofold. One is what does it do for the organization that's featured? We did our first ever formal evaluation last year. And one of the things that we learned was that in a case like those two organizations that I just mentioned, it's really hard to gauge specifically what piece of their great success can be credited to Slingshot. You know, What we do know is that funders who are getting involved for the first time with an organization if they see that it's featured in Slingshot. It's like a seal of approval that makes them feel more confident about getting mm-hmm. involved with that organization. It's great for the organizations to be able to say, we were featured in Slingshot. It's a marketing moment. The fact that the books came out on June 6th this year, we did that strategically to try to help them with year-end fundraising, mm-hmm. that the book should come out just in time to be able to say, you know, hey, we made it into Slingshot.
0: Oh you we've done, yeah. I'm surprised to hear that you've done one evaluation in 12 years.
1: Yeah. It's the... it Yes.
0: (laughs) I'm assuming that, you know, there came to a point where you're like, it's time to look a little deeper into what it is that we're doing and look at some of these metrics of how it's impacting.
1: Yes. I think it was a project of a foundation for a while. We actually became a 501c3 about a month before I joined Slingshot. We had been a project of the Bronfman Philanthropies until they decided to spend down and we were sitting inside the Jewish communal fund for a little while with them as our fiscal sponsor. So it's been an evolution and certainly. Certainly, I think, and this is in great credit to the board and to Will, that if we're setting standards for where organizations should be at certain points in their life cycle, which is something we introduced this year, we certainly need to hold ourselves accountable to the same set of standards that we're putting forth for the field. And I was grateful coming in that the board and staff had already decided to get into a formal evaluation. That
0: makes a lot of sense if that's the turning point that you're now sort of launching on your own to try and take some of the pieces of what the history has shown you to move you forward. That makes a lot of sense.
1: On the impact piece for the organizations, what we know is that it's been helpful. What we don't know, which is everybody's first question is how much money have we been able beyond the slingshot fund, which we can easily track. For a lot of people, the question is how much money have these organizations seen from being in the guide? Even with hiring an incredibly talented and well-respected firm, it's an impossible question to answer. You know, we send out about 7,000 books a year, of the national guide that isn't counting any of the supplements or the downloads that happen from the website. And we give every organization that gets in, gets a stack of books and they are asked to hand that out to their funders and in their network. So it's really hard to know. It's like a dollar bill in some ways. It's hard to know how somebody got to the organizations. I will tell you that every year I get calls from people who are new to the field, foundation professionals who tell me that they want a copy of the guide to orient themselves. I've heard stories from organizations who've calls and emails and letters from those foundation professionals who are looking into trying to get the family expanded into Jewish innovation in a new way. People who, you know, organizations will call and tell us when they know that the guide has helped them to secure new funding. And we also know that the people who participate in the Slingshot Fund, every year there's a story or two or three of uh, an organization that the fund chooses not to grant their money to. Mm-hmm. The individuals who are engaged in the fund wind up calling the organization afterwards and saying, I really love what you did and I want to make a gift. So, and get involved with what you're doing, which is another key point, right? Like, one of the big pieces with NextGen funding is that they're much more interested in getting involved with an organization and really having impact and not just in the check writing, but also in the getting involved with the organization. So there's that piece. On the partnership piece, I left out something really important, which is that as we've started to expand into local areas, we've recommitted to our relationship with 2164 and Grand Street and have actually started working with them in local communities to bring that Grand Street training to the Slingshot Fund members who haven't found their way to us through the national fund. So the way we recruit for that fund in large part is through 2164 and the Grand Street Training. It's also word of mouth and people who've done it. JP Morgan has been a partner of ours who sent people our way. They don't have Jewish content, but they are working with young people around philanthropy.
0: I've never heard of of either of them.
1: So I'll have to put those websites up on your bio so other people can check that out as well. It's 2164.net. So they also spun off from the Bronfen Philanthropies and we're sort of, in that way, I would say, cousin organization or siblings even, but I think we get so much out of our partnership with them. We send people to 2164, they send people to us. Sharna Goldsecker, who runs it, is a friend and colleague, and it's been really, really nice to strengthen the field and the impact of both of our work in intentionally working together to strengthen what we're offering the next-gen funders that we work with at Slingshot.
0: Great. So I mentioned again before, I'm a Jewish professional and how I've used this guy is to see what's going on right in the innovation field or what's going on with more legacy organizations as far as what they're doing in the innovation field. And I always find it interesting when you do publish organizations year after year and highlight what it is that they're doing is innovative. I think that that's very encouraging for them to continue to be innovative. So I'd love to hear from you what advice you have for Jewish professionals, either of the organizations that are being highlighted in this guide or Jewish professionals that want to do something innovative or Jewish professionals who
1: are doing something innovative or just any of Jewish professional. So a couple things. One, I would say for me, innovation is front and center for those of us who work in this space, certainly. But I want to be clear that innovation does not equal best of. So this book highlights the most innovative. It's not meant to be a comprehensive list of the best organizations in Jewish life. I feel like that's an important distinction I try to make because it's worth noting. Look, I think innovation 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 is trying to do things in a different way. And if things aren't broken, innovation isn't the answer to everything. Certainly, I think there are new issues that require us to think in different ways about things. And certainly, if you're looking to engage next-gen folks, and this seems to be where some of the biggest questions I get are, what I'm seeing in terms of trends, which I think is what you're getting at in your question, is the programs, the organizations, the places that empower the user to create the experience or help to craft the experience are the ones that seem to be resonating most. And certainly, there are things in the book that you'll see this year that it's a community service, and in that way, requires that there be expertise and leadership in that way. But I, I think as we're dealing with a population of any age that creates the worldview they want to see in the palm of their hands, you can't expect for anything, Jewish life or anything, to engage change them that tells them how it's going to be. In large part, I think you need to create the opportunities for them to find meaning. Certainly when you're talking about spirituality and community, that it has to be an open, inclusive place that they can bring all the diversity of their own identities and the people in their spaces that can feel welcome, that can feel engaging, that give them the keys to really creating the kinds of experiences that they are interested in having. And so I think for anybody who's looking to be innovative, those are really like the two things I think about often. One is, do you need to innovate? Are you accomplishing your goals the way you are going about the work? And if the answer is yes, I would question why is it that you're looking to innovate? If what you're doing isn't working, then certainly I'm thinking outside the box, trying to think about who your end user is and how they're connecting to the other pieces of their world and thinking about how to make Judaism and Jewish life accessible to them in that very same way. Either or proposition is going to be difficult. And I mean this in any way, whether you're talking about looking at the trends we're seeing in the guide, right? The Jewish and outdoor environmental food and education work, Jaffe, whether we're looking at the group of synagogues without walls that are Mishkan, Ikar, Labshul. So much of how these groups I think are succeeding is in Moisha House, One table. You know, one of the things we saw this year as a trend, which is really cool and of course makes perfect sense, is digital access, whether it's to Jewish education or entertainment or the platform to create a Shabbat dinner and invite people. That is how all of us interact. We're doing it right now, right? As we're recording this, we're using this. So to think about how people are using the resources that are accessible to them and how to help solve your problem. By using some of the innovations in the culture we're in, not recreating those technologies, but utilizing them. And I mean, in some ways, digital, right, online stuff, and some of it just modalities of thinking and approaching the work.
0: And so let's circle back to you and your own life. You mentioned you have two kids. I do. Are you full-time in an office
1: or do you get to do some of it remote? So I have two kids and I am full-time in an office. This gets back to the culture we're trying to create. It's Friday, we're recording this and I'm at home. We have a really nice, flexible, really, truly, authentically flexible. Rachel Hodes, who's our director of community experience, will tell you. The way I think about this is that we bring our whole selves to this work that we do. And that means oftentimes for a lot of us that our personal and professional are intertwined and intersect in lots of really interesting, fun, and sometimes challenging ways. And so there is no nine to five, right? Like this is what I do. And certainly I try to shut down for Shabbat so that I'm really able to focus on my family and my kids. There's no nine to five. There isn't five days a week. And so that means that sometimes if the only exercise I can fit in that week happens between nine and five, and it means that I'm working Saturday morning to make up for it, or I'm up later at night or waking up earlier in the day. I think that's how I've solved for work-life balance because I think this is probably the first time my job has ever been it never shuts off. Thank God I'm in a place that doesn't have emergencies that take me away from my family and require me to be on 24-7. I think the two are really integrated, which for me offers flexibility. That's mm-hmm. kind of how I view what we're doing. Sometimes you're working at night, sometimes you're at a nine o'clock in the morning exercise class. Right. I think as long as the work is getting done and it's not being compromised by the flexibility.
0: Yeah, and I think some people don't necessarily operate like that. I think some people do like the don't answer an email at ten thirty at night because you'll set a precedent that you'll answer emails at ten thirty at night. And the other people, which seems to be yourself and is definitely myself, is well at ten o'clock on a Tuesday in the office, I have to call the electricity company and do you know, something at my house or you know schedule my doctor's visit or balance my checkbook during quote unquote work hours. So if I'm up at eleven and I've got six emails, I'm going to read and respond. Them right, and so it's thinking about for those that that works, whole integration in everything that you do that it's not the should be working, shouldn't be working, that you are able to have that flexibility. And that doesn't work for everybody, some people need that structured, I am on from this time to this time, and don't bother me, you know, any other time.
1: So it's interesting. I think I was like that before this job. My kids were younger also. So I'm really involved in their school. I'm on their board and I travel quite a bit for work. So it's just, I think, how I find the balance. And I think also to your point about the 10 p.m. emails, Rachel knows, and it's right now it's just the two of us. She knows if there's an emergency at 10 o'clock at night and I need her to respond, I'll text her. Right. I think that's probably happened once or twice in the past year about something crazy unforeseen like a website hacking or something like right. that.
0: Right. But you're happy to take it, right? It's not, you're like, oh my God, why are you, You know? but you're like, great, I'm here, I'm present. What do you need? Like this mm-hmm. is, This is absolutely part of who I am and what right. I do all of the right. Time.
1: Right. And to be clear, most of the time I'm at the office, however grandiose I'm painting this picture of like the totally, I'm in the office most of the time. Right.
0: Awesome. So any last comments you have about the work you do, about how you are as a professional, the other professionals in the world, future leadership, any other comments uh, you have for us?
1: A couple of things, I think. One of the things that's been really cool about taking on this role is the support that I have felt from the community. You know, I've been sort of in the Jewish philanthropy space for about 15 years or so, and I've been unbelievably blessed and honored and privileged to be both part of the inaugural cohort of the CEO onboarding program. And I'm now Schusterman fellow. And I feel like the support in me as an individual has been Wonderful. Really, really important, I think, for new executives to have a cohort of people that they can turn to, a place where they can be vulnerable and admit the stuff that they don't know. And that has been, I would say, that that piece in my first year was critical to my success in that first year to really just all the resources and the network of people that they sent to me. And to be able to kind of continue on in year two, I've had one gathering and we're really just getting started now, but to now also be able to have the support from the staff and colleagues in the Schusterman fellowship has been huge. So I would say just in terms of advice, anything, any way that you can get yourself connected to other people in your space, both who care about the things you care about, who have the role you have, who have the size budget you have, and a larger one and a smaller one who have Mm -hmm. staff and small staff. There's a million things I took away from the CEO onboarding program. One of the largest impacts I think for me and the organization is being in a group with federation executives who have buildings. They have you know many, many, many staff people and tens of millions of dollars. We're a small organization. There's two of us. Our budget's still under a million dollars. And setting the bar for what is possible and how we should behave as Jewish communal professionals, regardless of the size of our budget organization or staff, set a pretty high bar for me that I am eager to meet. So I would say whatever the role you're in to surround yourself with people who are doing it your way and not doing it your way and who care Mm -hmm. about what you care about, We're at an incredible time in our history and we work in a community that is passionate and is blessed with wonderful resources and has a really passionate and committed and smart next generation of philanthropists who are coming up through the ranks. And I I know a lot of us, myself included, have lots of concerns about the future, but I can tell you just from where I'm sitting that we're in really good hands and we're going to be okay. And I have just so much confidence, both from the organizations and the incredible stuff that they're creating. and the next-gen funders who are there to help make those things run financially and with their wisdom. And we'll get through this rough patch. And I think what's on the other side of it is really brings me so much peace and hope for what lies ahead that I hope other folks can sort of take a look at Slingshot and feel some of that too.
0: Well, I really, really appreciate your time and really appreciate the work that Slingshot does in highlighting Jewish organizations that are doing interesting things. As somebody who started a project, I know how difficult it can can be when you've started something to to get your name out there, to get your brand out there, to get funding, to do all those things. And you're providing this amazing platform for that to be possible. So I'm glad they found such a fantastic professional and have gone on their own and only wonderful things from here. So thank you so much for being on the program. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. My goal for this episode was to learn more about the Slingshot Guide and how it influences our community. It's clear to me anyway. The SingShot's influence has built over the years within the space of innovation. We heard from Elisa Mazur, now the chief field building officer for Upstart, about her work on the ground with innovators. My conversation with Stephanie is now the perspective of the other side, those who find themselves wanting to connect to each other in new and interesting ways. Deciding to take a project and make it an organization is a lot of work. Stephanie has a long road ahead of her to build this new organization that has served the community of innovation for so many years already. Gali Cooks explained to us why Leading Edge started the CEO onboarding project so that new executives can connect and learn from one another. And Abby Saloma walked us through the process a participant undergoes in the Schusterman Fellowship. I'm glad Stephanie is able to benefit from these great opportunities to help foster personal and professional development for our organizational leaders. I look forward to seeing more from Stephanie and Slingshot as they carve out their purpose in our world. We want to again thank our podcast partner for this episode, Nonprofit Learning Lab, for their support of this project. I want to remind you that listeners get 50% off any service with the promo code, you know. Visit nonprofitlearninglab.org to check them out. In a month, we will be hearing from Ruthie Washenbrad about her experience at the Wexner Foundation. She wanted me to let our listeners know that the Wexner Fields Fellowship is now accepting pre-applications through September 6th. For more information about eligibility and how to apply, please visit www.wexnerfoundation.org. Our editor is Nick Bowden of Bowden Sound, and you can find previous episodes, guest bios, book recommendations, and more on our website, www. At it's Who You Know the podcast.com. This is your host, Michelle W. Malkin. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week. Like this episode? Have a comment or a great suggestion for our next interview? Contact us through our website at It's Who You Know the or on the It's Who You Know Facebook page. As always, subscribe, rate, and review this podcast so that
1: others can find us. It's Who You Know the Podcast.